Hi, friend. Oh my gosh. You're on pause screen. Yeah. You're uh, oh str struggle struggling today. Hello. You disappeared on me. Holy shit. I know. <sighs> I mean, you're struggling one day. I struggled for the last three weeks. So and and for the foreseeable future. I know. It's because I haven't done this in so long. Here it goes. Fuck. There we go. Welcome to Bookaholics Anonymous. I'm Francesca. I'm Alicia. And we are back, baby. Back in, I would say better than ever, but that's debatable. Back with three and a half legs and working with what we got. <laughs> we go on vacation with all four and I come back hobbling around on one foot. Before we right. get into that, how was your vacation? I'm still technically on vacation because I leave Tuesday to go to Chicago for 10 days. So. Ooh. I, did, I made a quick pit stop in the in the city for, I think, 10 days-ish, so I could go to work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's fun, though. Yeah. How was how was your trip? I don't know. Should we say where you went? I don't know. I went to Vegas. I mean, I'm not there anymore, so I went to Vegas, and then I went to Arizona, and that trip... The person, my one of my best friends went with me, Haley, um, and we both agree that trip never should have fucking happened. <laughs> um, we should have oh, known no. when the flight was delayed six hours leaving that we should have just left, like the airport, and never did this trip. I ended up potentially <laughs> breaking one of my ankles, not breaking it. I shouldn't say that. Tearing one of the ligaments in my ankles. <laughs> um, which is why segue. I'm drinking water for the foreseeable future. Um, not because I don't want to be drinking. Pussy. <laughs> not because I don't want to be drinking, but I'm a little scared of alcohol right now because I was drinking when I fell and did this shit to myself. And being only one and a half legs, I don't want to risk falling down on the other one. So <laughs> it's going to be water for me for a while. Oh boy. But what about you? What are you drinking? I'm having a, a white wine. Ooh. I think. I don't know what it is, actually. I can't remember. A Pinot Grigio, probably. Ooh, fancy. Did you like my wine glass? My mom yes. got it for me for my birthday. It's so pretty. <laughs> I still yeah. have your present here. <laughs> that's that's the theme, I think, of my birthday. Not like it's any. it was like I was expecting anyone to get me a gift, but I have you and my friend Janelle. Um, we were on FaceTiming yesterday, and she's like, I still have your present here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been waiting. I was going <laughs> to, what I was originally going to do was put it in a book of the month box and just paste over like where my address stuff was with yours. So you'd be like, why am I getting a book of, like, I didn't order an extra book of the month and then it would have been my present and would have been surprising, which would <laughs> have been fucking for June. Yeah. For June. Yeah. See, that would have been really weird. I would have been like, what is this? Because I didn't um, pick a order, book for, yeah. for June. So that would have been funny. It. But I just, I have, I got my book for June and still haven't even opened the box. If that Do you know what it how, was? Which uh, one yeah, picked? I got The Maiden by Oh, Alex. that one seems really interesting. Yeah, my therapist read it and recommended Ooh. it. So I was like, perfect, I just ordered it. Thanks, Shannon. Yeah, so, I got, there's so many good ones this, uh, this last month in June. So I panicked and didn't order any of them. <laughs> But I, think I think you can still order it. No, it's well. I can still order it like next uh, month. I can just like not pick one of the ones for for next month and just yeah, 
But um, I think I'll probably go with Malibu Rising. So Ooh. I just have a lot of books here. I um, did some damage on my vacation. I saw so, that. You crazy girl. Yeah, I bought 10 books. So. Ma'am. Yeah. Oops. I bought, you bought 10 books. I bought a shot glass that looks like a prescription pill bottle. Oh my gosh. Because I felt like that was very me. Yeah. Yeah, it so, is. Especially now that you've like broken damaged, your ankle. Yeah. And it's my good foot. It's old yeah. reliable. For anyone that doesn't know me, which is almost everybody that listens to this. Oh my gosh. The five people that do. Um, I've had two ankle surgeries on my right foot and the, the this stuff has happened to my left. So, if anyone knows a good person to do just a straight cut off of my legs, like a dismemberment of both legs, or my feet, excuse me, um, holla at me. I'm ready to just give up and just go full wooden peg legs. I feel like that would be a fun... And I could pirouette so much easier. Oh my gosh. So, but... Any book news before we dive on in? Book news-wise, I don't think so. I'm trying to think. Um, I read, I don't think, I'm I'm not going to cover it for the podcast, but I read One Last Stop by Casey McQuinston. It was pretty good, and that was a pretty big release. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think anything significant has happened. I don't don't know if, if you can think of anything. No, none for me. I saw that. Oh, I did see that HarperCollins signed a deal with uh, Jared Kushner for a memoir. I did not see that. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness I did not see that. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a choice. I mean, yeah, it is a choice. Not one I would make, but. Yeah, no, neither would I. You know what? You got to make money somehow. Yeah. So, you know, choices. Our choices, and we're just gonna <laughs> choose to ignore that. <laughs> so, oh boy. Um, that being said, do you wanna jump in? Because this <clears throat> might be a. This one is a doozy. Yeah, I'm scared for this one because Francesca keeps telling me it's gonna be long, and I keep responding to her like three hours long. Like, um, which, yeah, which, which one was it? What was it called? I know what it was about, but I can't remember was, what the book title was. It was, was either the American Predator or Hidden Valley Road. I think it was Hidden Valley Road. Hidden Valley Road, we recorded for like three hours. Three or four <laughs> hours, yeah. <laughs> well, this one <laughs> is by the same author as Hidden Valley, Valley Road. Francesca. <laughs> um, Robert Kolker. And it is called, if I can get the screen up, uh, it's called Lost Girls, an American Mystery. An unsolved American mystery. Um, I gave an Alicia a homework assignment, which I'm assuming she did not do. Well, because I didn't think I was supposed to watch it before. Oh, uh, well, yeah, no. Because it, 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 I didn't want to ruin it, you know? Because I was like, oh. Um, you really can't ruin this book by watching that. Yeah, because I was going to watch it this morning. Instead, I watched Survivor, season 40, for anyone wondering. I'm on season 22. Uh, I just had to, I was just like, oh, I really want to watch season 40. So I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do it. I don't care. But um, <laughs> I was My like, choices. Yeah. I'm an adult. Right. But I was like, oh, I, I should watch that um, documentary Francesca was telling me about. But I was like, oh, wait, if I watch it, it's going to like ruin our episode later. So <laughs> I'll just wait and watch it like Sunday. 
Honestly, you can watch it before or after. So for context, this book is about the Long Island serial killer, which hits a little close to home for me for obvious reasons. Sorry if you hear like squeaking in the background. That is my chair that is like 500 years old that I cannot fix. So <laughs> that's not going to change. So I recommended to Alicia to watch the documentary that inspired me to read this book by the great Billy Jensen. Oh. Can him and Paul Holes adopt me, please? <laughs> um, it is called Unraveled on Discovery Plus, I think it's on. Yeah. Yes, Discovery Plus. Um, and that will give you probably the most up-to-date information on the case and an investigation into the case that is more in-depth than necessarily what this book is because... Everything that happened with the case happened in about 2011, 2010, and the book was published in 2013. So the information in the book is not going to be as accurate in terms of recent information. But what I loved about this book was that it focused so much more on the victims and their lives and their families instead of the actual case. Because mm -hmm. when this book was published, there wasn't like a lot of information out there to begin with other than the initial like what was released to the public kind of thing right so i really love that he paid far more attention to the victims of these disgusting crimes than more than and it was less about the investigation i side. think anyone who writes a true crime novel are like superheroes because it has to be so hard to write one you know, you, yeah, because you, you just don't want to do wrong by by any of the victims or, you know, anyone involved other than like, obviously, like the serial killer or the killer that you're covering, um, the criminal. But yeah. like, I don't think I could ever do it as much as I like think it's so interesting. And I like I have a journalism degree. So obviously I, I did that because I find journalism, journalistic reporting interesting. But it's just like it's got to be so hard. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And the way that he laid out this book worked really well for the story and for how it was laid out. And you say that, that they're superheroes and giving dignity. All I could think about was, I sent you a screenshot of this. The first part of the afterword in the book, which was an email from one of the victim's moms saying, I can't believe all the lies you wrote about my family and I. You should be ashamed of yourself. How dare you write such trash? <laughs> and that's in the afterward. That's not in the beginning, obviously. Right. But when you do research into these families and, and you you read about them, you kind of laugh it off, what she says. Right. Because, well, we'll get into that. But I just thought that was really funny that that's what he chose to start the afterward with, especially after everything. I would have started um, the book with that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I've been like, yeah, some people are haters, but they just want, don't want to handle the truth. What can I say? <laughs> you can never take away my truth. Haters gonna free hate. Free Britney. Free, hashtag free Britney, but we'll talk about it at the end. Oh my gosh. That being said, going back to the book, I did put together a little PowerPoint presentation for you. Oh Lord. Okay, hit me with it. No, you can look at it. It's on our, it's on the Google, Google Slides. Oh boy. So it. It's more for you, necessar more necessarily, because it gives pictures and who's associated with who. 
So that way you're not as confused, like, listening to me tell the story. Okay. You'll be able to say, like, who's with who. And it just gives some maps of, like, the area. Maps. Love it. Yes. So just to give you a little background and maybe a little bit more context when I'm talking about everything. Okay. So we'll start. And so the story starts in May of 2010. It's just after 1 p.m. Excuse me. It's just after 1 a.m. That would make a whole (laughs) lot of difference. Big difference. It is 1 in the morning. And a man named Michael Pack uh, drives his Black Ford Explorer down Ocean Parkway. Right there. Which is on South Shore. The name Michael? Red flag. (laughs) I'm sorry if your name is Michael out there and you're listening. I just had bad experiences with Michaels. That's fair. Multiple, so. That's fair. And your judgment is... Fair. Thank Rightfully you. Rightfully so. I appreciate that. So he, his GPS directs him towards like this unmarked side road for gated community called Oak Beach. And in the back seat, he's driving a young woman named Shannon Gilbert. The area, like where the house is that he's driving to has an intercom. So the guy has to come out and let the car in. It kind of cuts to this man. He's in his late 80s, and it's several hours later. His wife are about to head upstate for a car show, and it's obviously early hours in the morning, say around like 5 o'clock, and he hears just like this incessant pounding on his front door, and there's this young woman standing there, hysterical. She's got a cell phone in her hand, and he really can't make out like what she's saying other than that she's asking for help. Right. Now, anyone that's heard the 911 calls... Say it sounds like the man never let her into the house, mm-hmm. but he, Gus, this man, Gus, yeah. disagrees and said that he offered to let her in and she just bolted the second he said he was going to call the cops for help. Hmm. So he watched her find like a hiding place in the bushes and he, he they could see a car coming at them from down the road, the headlights and everything. When the car stops, it's much clearer that it's the same black Ford Explorer that Michael Pack was driving. Gus steps forward to talk to the driver, and when he does, the young woman just takes off. So it's obvious at this point that we know that the young woman is Shannon Gilbert, the woman that Michael Pack was driving. Okay. In the beginning. Okay. But do you know anything about this case or no? No. Oh my god, I'm so excited. Is this what that one book was um, based on that you covered? But yes. Okay. That, um, Girls Like Us yes. was... Oh, well, you didn't cover... Inspired we, by this. I don't think we ended I up... didn't cover it, but I've talked about it. Yeah. We yes. had an episode that we asked way back in the day before we released the podcast that was on Girls Like about Us. About that one. Yes. Yes. Okay. Because so, it was, was like... one of my favorites. This sounds... Sounds familiar. Yes. Okay. And it will sound familiar because the book was inspired by this. Okay. Okay. Um. So... Gus kind of steps forward to talk to the driver and sees that she takes off and everything. Now, where Gus's house is situated is right at the edge of the gated community. So if she had just turned and run, she would have run right out of the community, right up the road onto the the parkway. But she ran straight instead and ran back basically into the rest of the community. Mm -hmm. And she ran and banged on more doors with no answer. And she was still on the phone with 911, like begging for help. Oh, so behind one door, a woman doesn't open it, but she does call 911 and watch the girl run off and say, like, someone's 
Someone's running around the neighborhood. Come. Come get your mans. <laughs> Mood. Um, it takes the police 45 minutes after the man and the woman call for them to show up. And where is this? Like, on Long Island? This is on Oak, Oak Beach. It's on the okay. South Shore. Funny enough, when I was home, I met people from Oak Beach. Really? It did. <laughs> they were on vacation in the falls. <laughs> oh. And I was like, oh, my parents were like, oh, she's visiting from Brooklyn. She lives there. I was like, oh, yeah. I don't know where you are. Like, I don't know where that is on a map, but, like, it sounds familiar. <laughs> so they kind of come and they talk to people, but they don't get a lot of information. At this point, Shannon and Michael and the car are, are gone. So cut to seven months later in December, police recover the body of four women. They hope one of the bodies is Shannon, but ultimately none of them are. One was Maureen Brenard. Now, I'm, I want to apologize in advance for butchering anybody's names. Um, Barnes. She was last seen at Penn Station in Manhattan three years earlier in 2007. Wow. The next was Melissa Bartholomew. Again. That's how, that's how I would say yeah. it. Last seen in the Bronx in 2009. Oh my gosh, she's from Buffalo, my girl. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Another was Megan Waterman. She was last seen leaving a hotel in Hop Hog, Long Island, just a month after Shannon in 2010. Oh my gosh, I was just in Portland, like literally two weeks ago. (laughs) Ma'am, can you wait? I'm getting to that. A few months later in 2010, Amberlynn Costello was last seen leaving a house in West Babylon, Long Long Island. So there are several things that show some similarities between the victims. Like Shannon, they were all very small and petite. They were all in their 20s and they all came out of town to work as escorts. And they all advertised on Craigslist and Backpage. Now, I have my own story with Backpage. Not that I ever advertised on there. Yeah. I don't even know what Backpage is. It's like a website like Craigslist, but I think it's specifically for sex workers to advertise. Okay. Okay. I was like, now that's. I was like, gonna say, is this because I'm like a dumb Gen Zer or. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. I think that's what it's for. I think it's like. A less, I don't want to say known, but it clearly is less known <laughs> than Craigslist. I My experience was that someone either intentionally or unintentionally put their my phone number in one of their ads. And I was starting to get text messages and phone calls from oh, no. men who wanted to meet. Um, and some of them are still on my Twitter. Like, I took screenshots of some of the messages and put them on my Twitter and was like, well, what the fuck is this? Um, so if you dig deep enough into my Twitter from, like, four years ago, you'll find it. Wow. One time, a guy called, and I was like, what the fuck is going on? And my sister's boyfriend at the time, now her husband, he's like, let me answer. So he answered. He's like, no, bro, you got the wrong number. And the guy was like, oh, I'm, so- I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and, like, hung up. So I ended up having to change my cell phone number because it was on Backpage. And Damn. I only found out because I Googled my phone number, and the first thing that popped up was the Backpage ad. That's crazy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The only thing even slightly similar is I had someone use my name and picture on some like random ass like hookup site. Um, mm-hmm. what? Yeah. Back mm, three, four years ago. So it was around the same time I had someone 
steal my basically my identity and put it on like some random ass dating hookup site and I emailed like the site and was like hey this someone's pretending to be me this isn't me and I never got an email back so yeah I emailed Backpage about them taking down the ad because it wasn't the right phone number and they never did yeah I didn't expect anything but I was like oh it's worth a shot I guess that's creepy yeah I think I know who did it but so one thing I do appreciate that um Colker did was Talk about how much sex work has changed over the years. And I'm going to be referring to them as sex workers. I'm not going to refer to them as prostitutes. Um, because while it wasn't necessarily their first choice, they did choose to work do sex work. Right. And I don't think prostitution is the right phrase for this. Right. I just, um, I think that's like, isn't that like the, the, the term now, right? Yeah, sex worker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, um, is escort still politically correct? Because I feel like, I don't know. Um, I think it depends on, like, what they're actually doing. Right. Um, like, what it is. I'm gonna be honest, I did not do my research and look that deeply into this. Right. I in terms like of the different worker, distinctions. Right. I feel like sex worker is, like, the safe choice to go with, but I'm just... Yes. It just popped in my mind. I'm like, is escort still, like, politically correct or what? Yeah. Uh, Let us know. know. Weigh in, Please. 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 So that being said, I do think it's interesting how he makes the distinction of how different the life can be in the age of internet and how much easier it is to advertise yourself on the internet versus walking the street, which is dangerous. Yeah. And I think that's like kind of what he's trying to hit at was like how much easier it was for them to find clients on the internet. Right. It's so interesting. Also be me. Right. It's interesting because it's like they're both have dangerous elements to them because walking the streets is very dangerous, but also like trying to solicit sex work online is also dangerous because you don't know who you're meeting. Yes, exactly. Interesting. Interesting point. Yes. So now the public is starting to take notice of all these bodies popping up in the same location Mm -hmm. near where Shannon disappeared. And now the cops are like, okay, we have to look into this. Which, I'm going to be honest, I'm not going to say the nicest things about anybody (laughs) in regards to this, besides basically, like, the victims and maybe a few family members. The cops dropped the ball all all over. This was just... A shit show. Yes. So, I'm not going to be too kind to the police in this regard. And actually, a little update on the case. They are looking much closely or closer Closely, closely <laughs> at um, an officer that was involved in this case from the beginning. Damn. Um, the if you, I highly recommend everybody watch the Unraveled with episode with Billy Jensen because he really does take a hard look at the Suffolk County Police Department and their involvement in this case and how corrupt it actually is. It's kind of really fucked up um, and very illuminating in terms of where the case is now. So. It's also super important to note that the town of Oak Beach, where Shannon went missing, is incredibly small. It's a community outside of Babylon that kind of is, like, self-sufficient in that they have their own neighborhood association that, like, runs things within the community. And there's only 73-ish houses in the community. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking up where it is right now, so I can, like... 
But that's actually not as far down into Long Island as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, no, it's much to closer honest. to Queens, but on the south. It is a border. It's considered a part of the border islands. Yeah. So there's, so Long Island as a whole, a lot of people look at it as like a fish where you've got the body and then it jets off on the ends with the two fins. But on this, at the bottom on the south, there are a lot of border islands that are much smaller strips of island. Yes. Which is where Oak Beach is. Yeah, yeah. And Oak Beach is, it's probably, uh, it's like almost, it's a little bit before the middle. If you're looking at it yeah. from like, I'm in, I'm live in Brooklyn. So it's a little bit before the middle for me. When they talk to like the community members and everything, they don't say anything. And it just like truly blows my mind that nobody in this community saw or heard anything. I, <laughs> I get so heated talking about this. Anyway, we digress again. <laughs> So now let's talk about the first person I mentioned, Maureen, who's from Groton, Groton, Tennessee, Groton, Tennessee. She's from Groton, Connecticut. What the fuck is wrong with me? Wow. (laughs) What? I saw the T in my head said Tennessee. No, she's from Connecticut. Okay. So she grew up in subsidized housing development with her mom, her brother, and her sister. It was basically a three-bedroom apartment, and her dad was, like, there, but wasn't. Um, I don't want to say he wasn't involved, but it's, like, more like he liked to spend time on his own and would often go off on these, like, long walks by himself kind of thing. Oh, interesting. Like, his, their dad was the one they'd go to if they wanted to talk about, like, Star Wars or, how, like, you know, like, he was the fun dad, but, he like, was kind wasn't. of disconnected. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, which is, incidentally, like, how he died. In 2003, on Maureen's 21st birthday, um, he tripped and, and fell and hit his head and died on one of his long walks. So, he worked in lumber, and he was sometimes a mechanic, while her mom worked as a motel cleaning lady. They didn't have a car, so her mom would have to walk to work in order to get to the motel. This is so Shannon, when mo- right? Yeah. Shannon? No, okay. this is Maureen. This is Maureen. This is Maureen. Okay. Yeah. I'm going in order. When I first mentioned the girls, like, before, that order is how it goes for the book. Okay. I just got confused because it says it's from... She's from Norwich. Norwich. Oh, well, she moves there later on. Oh, okay, okay. Because I was like, wait. She grew up in Groton. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah. Cool. So, when Mohegan's son opened, that's where Maureen's mom got a job there as one of their first employees, and she stopped cleaning, like, hotel rooms. Mm Mm-hmm. She ended up getting a second job, so she wasn't home that much because she had to make money for them, which is completely understandable. So she often left the three of them to, like, look after themselves. That was kind of, like, her childhood, was just growing up, like, kind of looking after her siblings. And I think Maureen was the oldest. So she has a younger sister and a younger brother, Missy and Will. Missy will play a larger part later on as as Maureen's advocate post her death and when she's missing. Right. Just so... I'm trying, I'm going to try very hard not to mention the names of people that don't pop up again. Right. <laughs> because there are a lot of players in this book. hmm So I'm going to try and keep the names that I throw at you as minimal as possible so we don't <laughs> get confused. Maureen was a very introspective person. She also had, like, this thing where she could almost sense something was going to happen before it happened. Oh, don't Not, like, like psychic. Yeah. Not, like, but, like, she could, like, see, like... Not like Raven stopping to look into dead in the camera and breaking the fourth wall, but like just like, oh, maybe don't get on that bus. And then that bus like breaks down before work. Like 
Right. That kind of thing. Right. So she also used writing as an outlet for her emotions and her feelings. And as a kid, she had a pretty easy time in school, but she always preferred reading to being in school, which I feel like you can relate to that. Yeah. One time I got in trouble in religion class for reading Harry Potter, so (laughs) I can relate to that. Oh my god, I love that. Yeah. (laughs) So that was until she hit puberty and kind of came into her own body. She started getting more attention from boys and she really started to love that attention and kind of reveled in it. Which any 13-year-old girl... Yes. We love to see it. Yes. But that attention she was getting wasn't great from, like, her female... Yeah. Classmates. Yeah. No. Yeah. And it would actually, like, start fights to the point where she stopped going to school for a little bit. And she eventually dropped out for good when she found out she was pregnant at 16. Oh, my gosh. This poor girl. I could never. Personally. I would cry. (laughs) Yeah. So she and her boyfriend, Jason Brainard Barnes, were together for just six months when she found out she was pregnant and he asked her to marry him. And she took his name? Girlfriend. Yeah. Absolutely not. You deserve more. So they had a small ceremony in the courthouse in 1989 after Maureen gave birth to their daughter, Caitlin. That's a cute name. Just two years later, uh, Jason joined the army and they moved south. Um, and then when they returned to Connecticut, their marriage kind of just, like, fell apart. There was no, like, fighting or, like, violence between the two of them. It just kind of fell apart, you know? They agreed amicably to separate. But they did decide that Caitlin would go and live with her dad for the most part because he lived in a nicer area of Connecticut where the schools were just better. So it made sense for Caitlin to live with him. So how old was the the husband slash boyfriend, not ex-husband? They didn't specify but i'm gonna assume he was around the same age maybe a little like at most two years older than her but not right okay 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 and i hate myself for this but i should have given a trigger should have given a trigger warning at the beginning of this book i feel like that's obvious i feel like as well a murder like this but there are some very heavy topics and discussion of drug use and essay so turn back now if you're not comfortable with that so at this point maureen moved in with her sister and her sister's children to a low-income housing development in Groton. So you get the sense of Maureen was very much a dreamer and just had her own ambitions. She didn't really hold on to jobs long, whether it was because she was calling out sick or it's just not something she wanted to do when she would end up getting fired or quit. Ugh. It's rough out here. It's brutal out here. (laughs) (laughs) Starts quoting Olivia Rodrigo instead of Taylor Swift. (laughs) But she never let that hold her back, and she was never one to, like, give up on herself and her circumstances. She always had a plan for what she was going to do moving forward. So by 2003, Maureen was 21. She had a four-year-old daughter, no steady job, and no place to live on her own. She had been in a new relationship and had recently moved out of her sister, Missy's, apartment and moved in with her new boyfriend, Steve, who ran a pawn shop in Norwich, which is where that Norwich comes from crumb <laughs> comes from so i'm gonna quote directly from the author on steve's description which is that he was white but dressed and talked ghetto do with that what you will okay That's so he really didn't like but it's an interesting choice yeah listen yeah 2013 was a different time all right yeah 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 <laughs> 
So Steve really didn't like being around her family. And you could tell that the relationship was very strained from the get. And she would often find solace going to one of her friend's apartments to write um, on her MySpace or just hang out and watch videos and watch their daughters play together. So she often talked to her friend about how she wanted to be a rapper one day. You get an excerpt of one of her raps. It's a very good poem, but obviously it's a little weird to read like without a beat of some sort that was intentional for it. So I just read it as a poem and it was beautiful. (laughs) I just read it as a poem. (sighs) Um, At this point, she's 22 and she's not getting a lot of attention for her music. So that she was hoping for with MySpace. Um, So while she was on MySpace, she would see ads for modeling and decide to have her friend take her picture to submit them. And it was nothing overtly sexual or any nudity. But when you click deeper into these modeling ads, things like that, she would start to find the nude advertisements in the modeling escort advertisements. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. And she started to see how much money she could make just off of, like, being a cam girl, but realized there was so much more money she could be making if sex was involved. She didn't want to sign up with an escort agency because she didn't want to depend on someone else's, um, on the dependency of being someone else's employee and having to share her money with them. So that's when she turned to Craigslist. Now, at the age of 24, she started working at a telemarketing company, and has made friends with a girl named Sarah, who she went to high school with, but neither of them remember each other, which, given the fact that Maureen dropped out when she was 16, kind of makes sense, yeah. I guess. Although, yeah, depending on how big the school was, or small, like, I definitely know people who I didn't even go to school with, but they dropped out, like, right before they went to high school that my friends know. Mm-hmm. But we had a very small class, so if this was a big, yeah. a slightly bigger school... they wouldn't know each other. Yeah. If she dropped out at 16. So Maureen started the job right before Christmas of 2006. And Sarah knows that while she might have been happy there, she at least wasn't like hostile about coming into work. And she like, it wasn't terrible for her to be there. You find out that she moved into a place in Norwich paid for her by her son's father. And at this point, we don't know if that's Steve, but I'm assuming it's Steve. You know? Yeah. So Maureen admits that she doesn't like being so dependent on him, but because he has to drive her to work and things like that because she doesn't have a car. Smart. And Sarah does have a car, so Maureen would often bum rides from her to work. After the holiday season ended, both Sarah and Maureen were let go from the telemarketing agency. Very close to homelessness, Sarah ended up getting a call from Maureen asking if she would be... Maureen's driver. She tells Sarah that she's there's a guy that wants a massage and Sarah's kind of confused and is like, you're a masseuse. And Maureen's just like, yeah. Wink, wink, wink. So that's the beginning of Maureen's story. We switch to Melissa, who is in Buffalo. Represent. Represent 716. <laughs> We'd love to see it. So, Melissa's mother, Lynn, became pregnant at the age of 16 during her sophomore year of high school in Buffalo. Her boyfriend, Mark, was two years older. Mark proposed that they get married, which freaked the the fuck out of Lynn. She didn't like the idea of marrying Mark because of what her life would look like being married to someone. He was very meek and just, like, let other people control his life a lot. 
both of them were raised Catholic, so abortion didn't really seem right to them. And giving the baby away was not something that Lynn would even consider. So Lynn's grandmother suggested, like, they live together and just see how, you know, see how it goes. See how it goes. And see if they can survive just living together, much less being married. When she was seven months pregnant, she called off the wedding because Mark was just, like, smothering her, like, with their time together. Like, he was constantly like, where are you going? What are you doing? Why are you there? What are you, what's going on? Like, get off my dick. Right. (laughs) Get off my dick. I can't. I totally understand, Lynn. Like, I get you, boo. Lynn is one of the good guys, right? Right. So, she works really hard to graduate high school while she's pregnant so that she could give her daughter her the best life possible. So, Melissa was born April 14th, 1985. 1985, yeah. An Aries baby. Oh we my love gosh. to see it, babe. That's when my dad graduated high school. It was in 85. 85? Yeah. <laughs> That's the year my parents met. <laughs> This was literally, like, six months before my parents met, but okay. That's weird. That is so bizarre to think about. Yeah. So, Lynn gets a job working at a nursing home. Um, Linda, Lynn's mom, is where... uh, Linda's parents, like, took the two of them in, and that's ultimately where Melissa was raised for her childhood. And they lived in the neighborhood of Kensington Bailey, it's Which, I don't know. referred to just as Kensington. Yeah, in so book, some of yeah. these uh, neighborhoods that this guy refers to are, like, it's just so geographical. Like, if you look up on the map, it'll say Kensington Bailey. But, like, if you're from the area, you just call it, like, the Kensington area. And it's, like, right by the cemetery, Forest Lawn. I'm pretty sure this is, yeah. And in Forest Lawn is, like, not gonna lie, this is gonna sound weird, but it's a really pretty cemetery. <laughs> It's very pretty, the, the, like, it's very well kept, and there's a lot of famous people that are, like, buried there, so. Hmm. Millard Fillmore, the president, is buried there. I'm sure Chad Michael Murray will be buried there. Uh, we can only hope. That is our only, <laughs> I mean, he is from the area. Him and the Goo Goo Dolls. I'm sorry, but you have no choice. You have to be buried <laughs> yeah. there. So, while Melissa was growing up in that city, integration was happening at that time. Yes, ma'am. And it, but it didn't seem like it was a big issue for the area. It was kind of just like, oh, black people are moving in kind of thing. You know, it wasn't. Yeah. At least that's how it's portrayed. Yeah. Buffalo is like a very heavily segregated city. I I feel like everyone who's from the area would like back me up on that. Um, They're actually right now fighting over the Skyway, which is like a huge, like, it it cuts through like the neighborhoods in Buffalo and segregates like the the black neighborhoods from like the white neighborhoods and it's not like you can't cross this line if you're black but like that's just how the neighborhoods it's have like, have formed yeah, it's like implied yeah it's how the neighborhoods have formed because of this skyway um so they're trying to get rid of it currently um it's quite an interesting uh hot topic in the area mm. but i'm curious um where she went to school because depending on the time and, and when she she went, um, my mom could have student taught in her classroom. Because <laughs> my mom did a lot of student up. teaching in Buffalo. She works in Buffalo currently, so. Um, I think it's mentioned in the book which high school she ended up going to, but I didn't, I don't think I wrote it down. So I'll look it up and let you know. Oh, it wouldn't be high school. It would probably be um, elementary or middle school. Oh, so I think it was the Kensington Bale, like the Kensington I'll have to ask area. my mom. She yeah, she worked a lot in the Buffalo schools because she went to Buffalo State. 
Um, so the author talks about how race wasn't necessarily an issue for the family, but what was once a predominantly white community was slowly no longer just white people. Yeah, I can definitely see that because um, Kensington is close to some, like, to the whiter parts of Buffalo, so I can definitely see yeah. that for sure. So Lynn worked a lot of hours, leaving Melissa to kind of take care of herself in a lot of situations because obviously her grandparents were working too. And she was a tough girl, you know, like she was quick to stand up for herself and it did not matter the size of her opponent because remember, as I mentioned in the beginning, all of these girls were petite little things. Like Amber was like 4'11". Like they were... What, did I say it like that? No, it's just, it's that's like uh, Boston Rob, that's how he says Uh, it. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I got my wife here, Amber. You're like, oh my gosh, up. Holy shit. Stop it. I You scared the shit out of me because I work very hard not to have a Long Island accent, which maybe I should for the rest of this episode talk like I'm from Long Island. Oh no, absolutely not. I will hang yeah. up. <laughs> I, you scared me because that's how my mom says names. My mom, born and raised on Long Island, she will add R's to the end of names that have a vowel. So like my cousin Dana is Daner. But if the name ends with an... Uh, an R. She'll say Amba. Amba. Amba next door. Amba next door. It's the Italian. Yeah. What can I say? Yeah, pretty much. So when... <laughs> so when Melissa was like three, she moved out of her grandparents' home with her mom's boyfriend. Only for a year later, Lynn to walk in and catch him in bed with another woman. So oh, he moved no. back in with Lynn's grand- uh, grandparents. Yeah. Which, I mention that because a few years later, Lynn would meet the father of her second child, Amanda. He was black, which doesn't really matter to me, but in the context of the story is noteworthy because Amanda become, is obviously mixed race. So Lynn is white? Yes. Okay, this makes sense why they lived, lived in Kensington then. Okay. Yes. So ultimately, Amanda's father cheated on Lynn, and Lynn and the two girls would move back in with Lynn's parents. What was starting to get concerning was Melissa's behavior. She was going out a lot at night, staying out all night with friends, skipping school. And she wasn't really... And Lynn was mostly concerned with the people she was hanging out with. One was a boy, Jordan, who, as it's put in the book, tall, rail thin, and with pitch black skin. But that wasn't an issue. Which, if it's not an issue, why bring it up? But yeah, okay. That's an interesting um, description. <laughs> yeah. And I really appreciate that the author, he will put quote, he quotes like full paragraphs of what these people are saying. Yeah. So he like had to have a tape recorder with him or something. Oh, for sure. Um, so Lynn was concerned that he was dealing drugs and she didn't want Melissa around that. Mm-hmm. But Melissa disagreed and was like, no, he's just a friend. Mm-hmm. So in a last attempt to, like, calm her daughter down, she called Melissa's father, Mark, who had just moved to Dallas with his wife, and Mark agreed to take Melissa in for some time. So she stayed in Texas for two and a half years until she just acted out too much where the dad was like, oh, fuck, <laughs> go back to Buffalo. <laughs> her dad ended up sending Melissa back to Buffalo Damn. without telling her that he was sending her back permanently and left that to Lynn, for Lynn to do. Wow. What a guy. So, when she returned to Buffalo, Melissa found out her grandparents had sold their house in Kensington and moved to a town called Alden in Buffalo. Yeah, yeah, that's like a, it's a white person town. I'm gonna be straight up with you all. It's a white person town. It's like an, it's an okay town. It's like, um, 
Um, it's a, it's out there. It's very far from me. I'm in, um, I'm in like the north, northern part of Western New York, Ni- in Niagara County, which Niagara County is pretty big, so I feel okay saying that. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that is that is a white town. Wow, this poor girl. Yeah, it was a lot of farmland, and yes. she absolutely hated it. Yeah, I mean, I live. Niagara County is all uh, all farmland, so yeah. I can imagine someone moving from Kensington to Alden. Yikes. Yeah. This poor girl. Poor, poor sweet baby angel. A side note, I, in college, I taught, like, I was messaging some guy on a dating app whose name was Alden, and, Ooh. like, trying to be cute. Uh, he was high when we, at this point, just to be clear about this. this. Because I was like, oh my god, you're crazy about something. And he goes, no, I'm Alden. <laughs> That's the latest. I was like, all right, this is conversation is over. Like, (laughs) I can't. Um, but starting at the senior year, at her senior year, she announced that she was gonna move out. Good for you. Lynn really didn't have any leverage since Melissa was almost eighteen, and she also had to consider Amanda's well-being too. Right. So Melissa moved out and got a job at a pizzeria and enrolled in the high school that she would have been attending if her grandparents stayed in Kensington. Mm Mm-hmm. So, she ended up graduating with A's. Did she move back to Kensington then? Like, she moved back to that area, yeah. Okay, because I was like, how did she enroll in this school if she didn't live there? Yeah. So, that's, like, where her apartment was, was in that school district. Makes sense. Yeah. So, she ended up graduating with A's, and her grandparents, her mom, and her sister all attended the ceremony. How very nice. After graduating, she decided she wanted to go to beauty school, and she worked super hard. She went to school every day because she wanted to be incredibly successful. And they made a point to say that Melissa was the only white face at her beauty school graduation. <laughs> I guess that's the area that her beauty school was in, was that it was predominantly black, so. But she's not white. Like, she's white No, Melissa and black. is white. No, Melissa is white. Melissa her parents is- were. Yeah, her sister's the one that is mixed race. Oh, okay. I thought... Yeah. I thought... Okay, okay. That makes... Mm-hmm. Okay. She told her mom, she's like, I'm not getting married till I'm like 35. Kids are off the table because Lynn kind of scared her straight. Same. Being like. <laughs> wow. Love that for her. Because <laughs> like the idea like with her mom being 16 and pregnant, like that kind of scared her straight. Yeah. Um, And she really hoped like with this job with beauty school She'd see how little she was making at the pizzeria and want to do better for herself. Mm-hmm. So her first job uh, out of beauty school was at a Supercuts, and most of her clientele was white. And Melissa had a real knack of working with black hair. She had a real knack for, for laying the perfect edges, you know, wow. doing cornrows. She used to do her sister's hair all the time kind of thing. Oh my so gosh, this sister was blessed. She hated doing white people hair. Like, that shit's expensive. So she was, like, really disappointed by her clientele being white. Understandable. So she, <laughs> she gets back together with Jordan, much to the display of her mother and the rest of the family. And in 2006, Jordan and Melissa take a trip to Manhattan together. A few weeks later, they take another trip where, when they get back to Buffalo, she announces the two of them are moving to New York. She told her mom she had met someone who offered her a job cutting hair. Her mom warned her, like, this isn't a good idea. It's way more expensive down there, and you have no one. She's right. It is way more expensive down here. (laughs) (laughs) 
But Melissa was insistent, like, I can handle it. This guy offered me a job. He has a place set up for her, like, which automatically, sketchy. Right. No. So now we switch to Shannon. And the way that he's doing this is chronologically by victim, like, when they went missing. So first it was Maureen, then it was Melissa, then Shannon, then Megan, and then Amber. Okay. So we're clear. Okay. So... Two years before arriving in Ellenville, Mary, Shannon's mom, left her husband and she took her three daughters with her. Shannon is the oldest. The girls would later find out that while Mary loved their dad, he was a heroin user. So that's why she left. Wow. Mary had a very out- tough outlook on life. Uh, she saw it as combative and she was just waiting for the next fight to happen. And she taught her, she taught her children to be real or deal with the consequences of being fake. Which, like, how do you teach a five-year-old that? Who literally believes in dragons and playing make-believe. Oh, no. No, be real. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Ugh. Man. Yikes. Mary was my first problem with this book. Yikes. Like, not, like, the book. Just her as a person. Right. Um, Wait, <laughs> isn't it Mari? No, it's Mary. Really? Yeah. That's how they pronounce it in the movie. That's bizarre. I knew a girl who's spelled the same way. And pronounce Mari. And I found out that the sister's name isn't Sherry, it's Cherie. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Again, from the movie. Um, so, she wanted to be the sole provider for her children and raise them on her own without any problems. But the trouble started when she got pregnant with her fourth daughter, Stevie. Stevie and Mary would get into some really vicious fights. And when Mary's mother found out about this, she called the police. And Stevie's father ended up in jail. Mary lost custody, and all four girls ended up in the foster system. Yikes. So it took Mary about two years to get the girls back. And once they were reunited, that's when she brought them up to Ellenville. So one of Shannon's friends recalls that Mary seemed pretty checked out when it came to raising the girls. And that the two of them would disappear for hours... And no one would really go looking for Shannon, especially not Mary. So when Shannon was about seven, when they arrived in Ellenville, and shortly after that, she ended up in the foster system again for six years this time. That's rough. And Shannon's close friends remarked that this was really devastating for her. Like, yeah. she wanted to be with her family. Right. Um, Mary says that Shannon ended up in the foster care again because of herself that Shannon had a lot of problems, mood swings, and a lot of emotional issues. Which, of course, be an adult and blame the child. Okay. <laughs> when Shannon was 12, she was diagnosed bipolar. And though she never took her medications because she complained about the side effects. Which, girl, same. <laughs> Honey, we are on the same team. I get you. You get me. So Shannon would often flip-flop about whether she wanted to be in foster care or with her mom. Mm -hmm. And it was more like she would go back and forth, like the grass was always greener on the other side kind of situation. Right. And Shannon's sister, Cherie, has a little bit of a different story. She says that a certain boyfriend moved in with the family when Shannon was seven. And that Shannon and the boyfriend did not get along. So for this, Mary sent her away. And that's according to Cherie. What Shannon didn't know, and this is a bit of a trigger warning, but Shannon is lucky that she got out when she did because the boyfriend also clashed with her sisters and would also ultimately be physically abusive towards them. Oh, absolutely not. 
Absolutely not. Mary no. also did not know this and led support for her daughters when they accused him of this. The boyfriend ultimately went to jail and later died. <laughs> That's all it says in the book. You don't know if he died in jail or not. But it's possible to see both sides of the story for Mary and Cherie can be, like, accurate. Like, maybe, you know, she could have emotional problems while still having been clashing with her mom's boyfriend. You know what I mean? Like, she wasn't just sent away for that. Maybe Mary Mary just wanted her out of the house. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. But none of Shannon's friends from school recognize the person that Mary presents in her story. Which is why I'm like, fuck you, Mary. This whole book. These moms... Not all the moms. Lynn, honey, you're doing great. I'm so proud of you. But the other ones. They all remember her as this very energetic, very popular, beautiful young girl. Not this girl so troubled in her own emotional trauma. In eighth grade, Mary stayed... uh, In eighth grade, Mary starred as Miss Hannigan in the musical Annie. And others know that they saw her performance. They knew she was channeling her mother. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. Um, After eighth grade, she was given a new placement with a foster parent in New Paltz. And her foster mom was great. She really encouraged Shannon to dig into her classes and to try. And she ended up graduating a year early. And this foster mom really fostered this success of education. While in high school, Shannon developed a beautiful singing voice that really just blew people away. She was an incredibly talented writer and poet. The author really emphasized that she had a she really did have a strained relationship with her mother after being in and out of foster care for so many years. Shannon really felt like her mom didn't want her, and Mary did nothing to change that notion in her daughter's head. Mm-hmm. So after she graduated, she lived with her grandmother and enrolled in some nursing classes. She worked a couple jobs, but it really didn't work out. And ultimately decided to drop out of school and quit her job because it bored her. She dumped her boyfriend and told her family she was planning to move to Manhattan. She started... Uh, She wanted to start auditioning for singing jobs and really do whatever she had to to make money. She wanted to become everything her family didn't think she could be, so she could kind of become, like, their saviors. Which, like, I feel like is the wrong word, but that was, like, the only one I could think of when I was taking my notes. Was, like, right. she wanted to... Rescue them? Show the, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think that's better phrasing of it. So now we flip to Megan in Portland. So to understand Megan, you really have to understand her mother first. So, Megan... Muriel... Merle, is it Muriel or Merle? I think it's Muriel. I think it's Muriel. Again, yeah, if I'm butchering this, I'm sorry. But we're going to go with Muriel for the time being. So Muriel was Megan's grandmother, and she had six kids and raised them pretty much on her own in downtown Portland. Lorraine was Megan's mother and was kind of labeled as troubled by Muriel growing up. The house that Lorraine grew up in... You know, it had, like, alcohol everywhere, and Muriel was kind of, like, bringing men in and out of the house often. So it wasn't, like, a great situation. Not ideal. So 
Lorraine moved out of her mom's house when she was 19 and into a room in a YWCA, which is like a women's youth, like Catholic association kind of thing. Right. She worked at cleaning airports and getting her GED and living on her own. She was 20 when she got pregnant with her first child. The relationship with the father wasn't ideal. Lorraine started drinking after she met him and within a few months she was pregnant kind of thing. When describing her relationship with her father, with the father, Lorraine described a lot of abuse. So the father, Greg, uh, says there was a lot of violence on each end from both of them. Mm -hmm. So they end up getting back together after they have their son, who is also named Greg. (laughs) And Lorraine left him when she was eight months pregnant with Megan in 1988. So, Megan was brought into the into a home that was shared by her mother, her brother, and her mother and brother and slept in one bedroom, and her father and her her father's girlfriend slept on the floor in the living room. Wow. It was a one bedroom apartment. So, at this point is when Muriel kind of re-enters the picture. There are some pretty dark stories circulating within the family of what's happening at the apartment. None of which I'm going to get into specifically, but they don't sound great. Um, (laughs) Because uh, we would just be here all night. But um, basically together with two of her other daughters, Muriel began compiling like this file on Lorraine so they could keep track of what was happening to baby Megan. When confronted with a lot of the information, Lorraine often shifted blame if she couldn't deny the accusations. So... Basically, it was, like, whatever happened, it was never Lorraine's fault. So, Muriel applied for custody of Megan and Greg after finding out Megan was in the hospital with respiratory distress. And so, when Megan was born, she had come home with some unusual abnormal blood tests, which was, like, nothing serious, but, like, as a baby, it just needed to be monitored. And since Lorraine and the kids were receiving state aid... Muriel was very alarmed when the state couldn't track down Lorraine or, like, the social workers couldn't either. And that's what prompted Muriel to apply for custody was when she found out that Megan was in the hospital and nobody told her. Right. So they were let out of the hospital and Megan and her brother were immediately put into foster care. Muriel would go and visit them as often as she could. She was driving, I think it was, like, two hours one way. Wow. Like, champ. Yeah. She would go and see them. Lorraine was supposed to go with them, but she that, like, never happened. When Lorraine did come around, she was almost too casual about it and didn't understand, like, how her behavior was eventually going to affect her kids. You know what I mean? Like, she was just like, oh, hey, guys, what's up? Like, I'm going to go disappear for six months again. Bye! Like, (laughs) that kind of thing. Damn. Lorraine also had her own suspicions about why Muriel wanted to take custody of Megan and her brother, which was that her youngest brother, Eli... And Muriel's youngest son uh, was about to turn 18 and the government funding Muriel and her now husband were receiving would run out. So ultimately, Lorraine thinks that she just wants the kids to keep receiving those welfare checks. Muriel's other daughter, Ella, acknowledged that this was partly the reason why Muriel took them in. Like, and I appreciate that she acknowledges, like, listen, I'll take them in for the, like, she didn't just do it out of the goodness of her heart. She wanted the money. She wasn't trying to hide that, which I think is better than what Lorraine was doing. Right. At least she was, like, open about it. Like, yeah, I need the money, but, like, I also know that they need safety. 
Right. So, don't know what you want from me. Muriel ultimately ended up getting custody of Megan and her brother after almost getting caught in, like, a legal battle with Lorraine. Because Muriel literally pulled her aside and was like, either you hand over custody of them now and you'll get the chance to see them, or we take this to court and you never see them again. (laughs) So, Lorraine was like, okay, fine. Yeah. So, many of Megan's friends growing up didn't even know about her mother, but the ones that did did know that she harbored some, like, really deep-rooted hatred towards her mother. Greg even says their mother would blame everything on their grandmother, but at the end of the day, their grandmother was there, and, like, that was all they had. So when Megan was nine, a parent co- uh, parenting coach had to come to the house because her and her brother's behavior was just, like, spiraling out of control, and they would get, like, particularly violent with each other. The social worker recalls a lot of chaos in the house, and the family was really living paycheck to paycheck. Megan really ruled the house. Like, she got everything handed to her. And one word that the social worker consistently wrote, like, to describe her was defiance. She was very defiant. (laughs) One story that I love that was in here, because, like, obviously he's going to include, like, a lot of personal family stories in each chapter. One of them was that middle school Megan, she was 12. They were playing at the pool with some of her friends and her bathing suit strap, like, broke and popped open. Mm -hmm. And this old man said... She might as well be naked. So she stripped and jumped into the pool completely naked like an icon. Wow. And another one was that Megan was definitely more intimidating and more hostile. And if, like, some boys would gang up on her brother, if they saw her coming out of the corner of their eye, they would all scatter. Wow. An icon. I loved her so much. In second grade, she was diagnosed with ADHD, which, again, girl, same. (laughs) like mm. after fifth grade she was transferred to a school for troubled kids she was the type that really looked for adventure and really didn't think about the consequences or how people would perceive it and or look at her that is like the feminism we want to see you know what i mean (laughs) right a lot of people thought muriel 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 (laughs) was too frightened of megan and in her teen years to during her teen years, to discipline her, especially when Megan would, like, threaten her life in some instances. The family didn't understand why Muriel would keep giving her, like, allowances when her behavior was just so terrible. Like, why are you paying her to be bad? Right. And the social worker noted that Megan really didn't change as she grew up. She was still very unfulfilled and still very angry inside, but she knew Megan just wanted love, and she was very romantic she was looking for someone to love all of her because both of her grandparents just weren't enough i guess when megan finished middle school muriel and her grandfather moved the family to scarborough outside of portland which is like an area it's so beautiful i've been there before (laughs) (laughs) it's like the bushes and oprah have like houses there yeah but they moved to a trailer park So her brother had moved out into some group homes and was living some relatives because he was older and they moved into this trailer park. So she was kind of labeled as like white trash when she started at her new school. Right. She was eventually placed in special ed and in high school put in in an alternative part of the school for troubled kids that they called the basement. (laughs) That's awesome. Yikes. And she had run-ins with the cops on a couple different occasions, mostly for shoplifting like makeup. Right. But there was one cop in Scarborough 
Officer Weed. Wow. Love that name. What a name. Who really took interest in Megan seeing the situation she was in, and he really just wanted to help her. When she was 17, she stopped going to school and just started working odd jobs while she lived with Muriel. Uh, again, she was often picked up for shoplifting. Of course. She would just call this cop on occasion just to vent to him, to tell him, like, what was going on with her life. And he could tell that she was really searching for stability and understood she needed a feeling of being more secure. Megan did tell him when she found out she was pregnant. The father was a DJ around 32 years old and already had a kid in New Hampshire. She described it more like a bathroom hookup at a club in Portland. And Megan stayed at St. Andre's, which is a home for unwed mothers. Wow. For the length of her pregnancy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And she was petrified her daughter was going to be taken from her watching all of these other kids go be taken from their mothers right and this 100 percent stems from the trauma of being taken from her own mother right and she refused to listen to anybody when they were like no we're not they have different situations like we're not going to take your kid from you if that's not what you want right but lorraine hi makes an appearance oh no so she makes an appearance when she finds out megan is pregnant um and there's a definite strain on her relationship with Muriel at this point. Right. So with two weeks left in her pregnancy, Megan leaves St. Andre's and stays with Lorraine. Yikes. And at this point, Lorraine is sober now. She has a job and she's taking every opportunity to tell her daughter everything. She really rallied against Muriel and how Muriel took Megan and her brother away from her and what a terrible person she was and really just tried to turn Megan against her grandmother and while, like, Megan sympathized, two weeks was clearly not enough to, like, turn her against the woman that raised her. Right. Like, so, Megan had the baby and ended up going back to Muriel. She had a healthy baby girl in 2006 named Liliana. Lily for short. And people immediately noticed a change in her demeanor. She was far less angry and just so happy to have, like, her baby girl. Such a different, like, a complete 180 personality change. Right. But she was also living on $400 a month from the state to take care of her and Lily. And she wanted to give her daughter more than that and to secure her future than one that, than the one that she was given. Right. So ultimately you think, oh, this is where escorting comes in. Yes. So now we flip to Amber. So Amber was born in 1983 in Pennsylvania, the youngest of two girls. She and her older sister, Kim, were incredibly close. Shortly after Amber was born, the family moved back from Pennsylvania to North Carolina to Gastonia. I think that's how you say it. It's like Gaston, but Onia at the end. Yeah, no clue. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to be very blunt about her story uh, because I don't want to go into graphic detail, but I still want to do it like justice. So her story, Amber's story, is... An entire trigger warning. On its own. <laughs> Yikes. This girl, poor girl. So, trigger warning now. It was there in Gastonia at the age of five years old. Amber was raped by her 26 year old neighbor. Yikes. That's disgusting. I hate men. <laughs> yeah, literally. Well, Kim says the neighbor went to jail and their father went to jail for shooting him. <laughs> it. Turns out that the father had only brought out a shotgun and threatened to blow the neighbor's brain out. As he should. There are no records of the incident anywhere suggesting that 
nobody, like, everyone kind of just walked away and there were no charges filed. Ugh. Which is absolutely disgusting. Absolutely but... disgusting. Just vile. The mom blamed herself for it happening. And it appears Amber also kind of blamed her mom. Ultimately, her mother had a nervous breakdown and was hospitalized after the incident. Oh, no. That's really sad. Amber was emotionally and physically scarred by the attack. Yeah. Rightfully so. Right. Eventually, the family moved to Nesbitt Courts in Wilmington, North Carolina. Amber was a good student. She got A's and B's and practically shared everything with Kim. It's in college at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, at 19, where Kim meets a woman named Teresa. At this point, Kim is paying her tuition waiting tables at two different restaurants. Teresa is a year ahead of Kim, a few years older, and... She doesn't keep how she makes her living a secret, which is she's a madam. Oh, interesting. (laughs) At the start of the school year, of Kim's school year, there are a lot of medical setbacks between her parents, which require a lot of attention on Kim's part because at this point, Amber's only 13. Right. There's a nine-year age difference between her and Amber, just to be clear. Damn. Okay. So that's why a lot of it falls on, on Kim. So Kim would vent a lot to... Teresa about the money problems that she's having and just the struggle her family's having as a whole. And that's when Teresa, like, suggests Kim come work for her answering phones. Just answering phones. So the author goes on to make, like, he talks a lot about how much money they can make in, like, different situations and things like that. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of math I didn't want to do. <laughs> or mention, because I didn't want to get confused. But it's a lot of money. Good for them. Basically, so, basically her job was a guy would call... And give an address, a girl would go show up, she would give him a dance topless, and eventually end up nude, but it would never lead to sex, unless otherwise stated by the girl. It was never more than a half an hour unless the customer was willing to pay more, and when the half an hour ended, Teresa would call, and that was sort of a safety measure. Mm-hmm. So, like, if she couldn't get a hold of the girl, she knew something was wrong. Right. And girls never went to parties alone, they always went in pairs. If the, the girls were allowed to make side deals, but Teresa didn't want to know about them. And that's kind of why, like, that's kind of where the sex would come in, was in the side deals. And Teresa also had the girls sign contracts saying they were independent contractors, not employees. And they weren't being employed to do anything illegal. Because, obviously, sex work is illegal in almost all states, I think. Yeah, I think it's illegal in sure. all, all states, but they're legal in certain counties in certain states. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, Teresa ended up renting this huge, like, plantation house, which kind of became the epicenter of these really famous parties that the company was hosting. And after having worked there for a while, Teresa decided to go and observe some of the girls as they worked, like, a party. And she realized that she'd be making a lot more money. Right. And none of the girls were having sex or anything like that, but the tips were just, like, rolling in. Kim did have a line that she never offered full service. At least when someone asked, she wouldn't go there. But Amber did not have that line. Sex was kind of meaningless to her, which can happen to victims of SA. They can kind of turn in on themselves and sex altogether and become, I hate the word prudish, but that's the only one I could kind of like think of in the situation. Reserved. Reserved. That's better. Thank you. Or they can become overtly sexual and sexualize everything. And that's kind of what happened in Amber's case. Before she even started working for Teresa, she would often walk around her neighborhood and sell herself for sex. One former neighbor remarked that she really didn't care what other people thought of her and he really admired her for that. 
pretty much everyone knew where Kim was getting her money except her parents. And I think that's partially because they didn't want to believe it. Right. Their father even remarked that while Kim didn't believe in anything except for herself, Amber was always looking for something bigger uh, to believe in than, than just herself. Right. Amber was described as, like, the sweet one between the two of them. She was very endearing and had, like, this genuine innocence about her. Mm-hmm. And she really was, like, such a people pleaser. Like, she would do anything anyone asked. Really just wanted that affection and love from the people around her. Right. So, during these parties, Teresa's drug use kind of escalated uh, quite a lot. From, like, smoking some weed to doing some meth. Fun. Yeah. Uh, the first time Kim ever tried crack was at one of Teresa's parties, and she liked it because she could work through the whole weekend and not crash. Oh. Amber started using heroin with Teresa after Teresa made a connection with a dealer that would go to New York and get pills for their parties. The drug use kind of ruined, like, that close-knit family feeling that they had within the quote, company. One of the other girls, Crystal, actually left Teresa's business altogether to start her own agency. (laughs) And Teresa forced Amber out when too many Johns started complaining that Amber would take their drugs and their money and then not perform. She'd just, like, leave. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And there was one instance where Crystal and Amber were hanging out, doing drugs, and the topic of religion came up. They do the sinner's prayer and Amber suddenly just, like, receives Jesus into her life. What the hell? Crystal says how messed up it was that they were sitting there coming down from a high of crack cocaine and praising Jesus. <laughs> Hi, friends. It's Francesca popping in to just let you know that Alicia and I made the executive decision after spending several hours recording this episode to turn it into a two-parter for you guys. They original episode was almost three hours long because I wanted to do my due diligence in giving these victims full stories and thus the three-hour episode was born. So the two of us decided to split this episode into two parts. So this is just the beginning. Next part will be up next week. Unfortunately, that means that the outro we had originally recorded is no longer useful. So here I am in post giving you guys an update. Unfortunately, Alicia couldn't be here for this re-recording of the outro. So if you guys are looking for any updates or more info on pod, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at bookaholicspod. You can find me on Twitter at branchtoaststicks with an X and on Instagram at Francesca Hope. And you can find Alicia on Goodreads at Alicia Reads 13 and Storygraph just Alicia Reads. And we'll see you next week.